Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on the 12th anniversary of the Supreme Court's disastrous Citizens United decision, which has unleashed torrents of dark money into our politics and into stacking the Supreme Court, with five right-wing judges handpicked by the Federalist Society's Leonard Leo, with the exception of the sixth on the farthest fringes of the right, Clarence Thomas, who was the sole dissent in an 8-to-1 ruling allowing Trump's presidential papers to be handed over to the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. With Gorsuch, another of Leo's picks, making news because he refuses to wear a mask, thus endangering his fellow justices, we are joined by Lisa Graves, the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. We will discuss her article at Common Dreams, 12 years after Citizens United, the Supreme Court's right-wing revolution continues, and the portent that more radical rulings are in the pipeline following the recent 6-3 decision to strip the government of its powers to oversee public health during a pandemic. Then, with the World Economic Forum in Davos underway, accompanied by a damning report from Oxfam that the wealth of the world's 10 richest men has doubled during the pandemic, which has pushed 160 million more into poverty, we'll speak with Peter Goodman, whose latest book just out is Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. He is the global correspondent for the New York Times and was previously the New York Times' national economics correspondent, where he played a leading role in the paper's award-winning coverage of the Great Recession, including a series that was a Pulitzer finalist. Then finally, we will speak with Donald Cohen, the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an Oakland, California-based national resource and policy center on privatization and responsible contracting, He is also a founding board member of the Partnership for Working Families and a former political director of the San Diego and Imperial Counties Labor Council. The co-author of the new book, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back, we will examine the links between privatization and the undermining of rights, freedom and democracy. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. And she has a report at In the Public Interest, the billionaire behind efforts to kill the U.S. Postal Service, and an article at Common Dreams, 12 years after Citizens United, the Supreme Court's right-wing revolution continues. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. Thank you so much, Ian. It's a joy to be on your show. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And the disastrous decision by the Supreme Court in Citizens United still haunts us today. Twelve years later, we're on the anniversary of the 12th year of this crippling decision that has had such toxic effects on our politics. And we, of course, couldn't have a more divisive and deadly situation now as we head towards a kind of one-party Republican state controlled by Donald Trump. It's a complete nightmare, and it would not have happened without the enormous power of the plutocracy that this Citizen United ruling enabled. But let's talk about some of the more outrageous stuff that's happening on the Supreme Court itself before we get into talking about your article, Common Dreams, uh, Lisa. First of all, we've learned that Justice Neil Gorsuch refuses to wear a mask, uh, and he does so clearly and brazenly, and his seat on the bench is right next to Justice Sotomayor, who has diabetes, and she now doesn't join the bench. She has to argue from her chambers. And then the oldest serving member of the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, he was the one lone dissent in an eight-to-one decision that just came down, allowing the National Archives to release papers from the Trump administration that have been requested by the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. The fact that any anybody would have dissented in, a, in such a straightforward case is pretty shocking. So what do you make of, uh, I mean, there's, I'm just looking at a Newsweek article, there's a lot of calls for Thomas's resignation flashing around on the internet. So what can be done about this man who's so out of touch? Well, you know, Clarence Thomas is someone who obviously never should have been confirmed to the Supreme Court in the first place. And he's someone who has a very uh, uh, troubling track record. Um, you know, uh, as I point out in my article on Common Dreams, um, Charles Koch in 2010, the year that the Citizens United decision was issued, sent out an invitation, a private invitation to his network of billionaires bragging that Justice Thomas had been featured, those are Charles Koch's words, featured at his um, annual donor uh, political soirees where he coordinates with these fellow billionaires on their political strategy to you know, capture Congress and other um, public offices. And Tom and De- Thomas denied it, claimed he just happened to, to drop by, that his wife was there. Uh, that's not what Charles Koch wrote in his letter. Um, and Charles Koch also wrote that Scalia had also been featured at his events. So you have a Supreme Court justice who um, is has has been very close to billionaires, not just Koch, also Harlan Crow, um, who has provided uh, Thomas with yachts and private planes for his travels under the guise of being his friend, uh, a friend Char- a friend that Thomas met when he was. Um, on the bench as a judge. So a very friendly billionaire to have at your disposal to provide you with free vacations and the like. I think Thomas is corrupt. I think he should be removed. I think he should resign. I also think that, you know, it's not just Clarence Thomas, it's Jenny Thomas, who um, has been embroiled in scandal after scandal, where she's been, you know, closely coordinating with the Trump White House, closely coordinating with Republicans in Congress. Um, You know, it's been reported in a number of different places, and I'm sure there's more to that. But she's someone who's an extreme partisan and has also been, you know, very close to Leonard Leo, the guy who um, has helped pack the bench with his secret dark money network, a network that has been funded by anonymous billionaires, but also including uh, Charles Koch, to basically pack our Supreme Court with the Trump justices 
who are unworthy of these positions of trust, one of whom, as you mentioned, Ian, is Neil Gorsuch, who um, is not just a right-winger since his youth, um, an extreme right-winger who thought his right-wing mother wasn't right-wing enough, but he also appears to be a, a selfish cad. Um, I would call Gorsuch supremely selfish for refusing to wear a mask at the court's uh, arguments. And he's also someone who has, you know, continued to advance a right-wing agenda, the agenda of Leonard Leo and the billionaires that have backed him to uh, reverse legal precedents that Americans rely upon for their freedoms. Well, he's, I mean, I recall the frozen truck driver case that came up during his confirmation where he was the only justice on the appeal court bench to basically rule that the truck driver whose rig broke down in a winter blizzard should have stayed with his rig and frozen to death as opposed to going, leaving the rig and going to seek health. And that was such a cruel and heartless ruling. But he was auditioning for the Supreme Court, and you've got this cruel and heartless guy on there, and you've got, you mentioned the, the appalling hearings for the confirmation of Clarence Thomas, where Joe Biden dropped the ball, and then you go back to the other hearings for all of them, in fact, including Roberts himself. Roberts was, of course, a, a long-time Republican political activist whose entire political career was devoted to stopping Democrats from voting. Surprise, surprise that he struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. I mean, I'm bringing this up, Lisa, because these hearings are absolutely useless. We don't learn about who these people are. We learned about who Kavanaugh is, but it didn't sway the majority on the Senate. When I was working for the Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Patrick Leahy on judicial nominations, I was the chief counsel on noms. Um, I tried my best to try to keep John Roberts off of the D.C. Circuit because it was clear from his record, as you said, Ian, that he that his uh, primary work was um, as a political activist, as a right wing activist, that he had very hardened views um, about some issues, um, obviously, including the Voting Rights Act and more. Um, and after I left the Judiciary Committee, he was nominated to the Supreme Court. And, you know, he famously flashed his smile and, and you know, said that he was just going to be an umpire and call balls and strikes. That was never true. Wasn't true then. Not true now. Um, and, you know, he's someone who um, the Roberts Court has really orchestrated this attack on our democracy through these judicial decisions on Citizens United uh, and also on the Voting Rights Act and also on redistricting and more. Um, and, you know, I just think we have a real crisis on our hands with this court. And as you point out, the hearings do not really illuminate uh, in some ways what's really happening. I think Senator Whitehouse did a tremendous job during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings to uncloak this dark money swirling around the court where these billionaire funded groups are submitting amicus briefs, legal briefs to the Supreme Court. And this Supreme Court can choose its entire caseload. It doesn't have to take any of these cases. Um, it has discretion. The majority, John Roberts's majority, has the discretion to choose which cases it wants to decide on. And it's choosing cases to undermine our democracy, like uh, the Citizens United decision, which should be called Billionaires United, and the voting rights decisions um, of 2013 and the recent one that was that was written by Samuel Alito. This court is extreme, reactionary, and poised to reverse a whole array of precedents like Roe versus Wade, that people rely upon, but much more than that. 
And I'm hoping, I guess my hope against hope, Ian, is that as these decisions come down with this Trump, this uh, these Trump appointees in their first full term, that this will be the beginning of the end of this right wing domination of this court, that the people will really react uh, to these extreme decisions, uh, this dramatic effort to reverse precedent, and that we will be able to use these horrible decisions as fuel to you know, re-energize our democracy and regain uh, momentum toward uh, the progress that most Americans support. And again, I'm speaking with Lisa Graves, who's executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. And she has a report at In the Public Interest, The Billionaires Behind Efforts to Kill the U.S. Postal Service, and an article at Common Dreams 12 years after Citizens United, the Supreme Court's right-wing revolution continues. So perhaps the worst decision in, in a way, and obviously nothing is, <laughs> could be worse than Citizens United, but an equally bad decision, it just came down against OSHA's ability to mandate vaccines in, and other protections against COVID in private workplaces. And that could lead to the undoing of all government rulemaking, where the expertise in OSHA and the Environmental Protection Agency and the Securities and Exchange Commission, you name it, across the board, that could all be wiped away and replaced by the whims and dogma of a right-wing judge. You're, you are so right, Ian, You're spot on, because um, you know that decision uh, basically says, in a nutshell, that the agent, federal agency devoted to the health of workers in the workplace cannot issue regulations to protect the health of workers in the workplace if, uh, if they're also threatened by that same uh, affliction outside the workplace. Um, you know, what that means in reality is like uh, smoking rules. People smoke outside the workplace. Um, and so therefore, um, you know, should uh, we not be able to have rules to prevent smoking in the workplace when it's manifestly dangerous and, and has been proven to cause cancer? Of course, OSHA should be able to regulate that, but not according to the logic or rather the illogic of this Supreme Court, this results-oriented court that was handpicked to um, enact what Leonard Leo called a revival, quote, revival of his view of the Constitution um, as it existed basically 100 years ago, um, to kind of roll back all these precedents that allow the federal government to um, have uh, agency rules and, and agencies like the EPA regulating carbon and more. And so this is a radical reactionary court, and it was handpicked for that reason. Uh, Leonard Leo has had a hand in, in all of these appointments except for Thomas. Uh, I think Leo was in law school at the time. But all of the others um, have been part of this um, effort to basically remake the court uh, so that it will be poised to reverse a century of law, laws that have really helped define American progress and that have breathed real life into the promises of the Constitution that had been neglected or broken by previous courts. Um, one of the things Chief Justice Roberts did this, at the end of this year was make this announcement about how, you know, it's unfair to call the court partisan or these judges partisan and, and that they're really independent despite all evidence to the contrary. And he pointed to Justice William Taft, uh, former Chief Justice William Taft, who was also a former president, um, as, uh, as uh, someone who was 
responding to claims that the court was biased when it wasn't. Well, the court he's pointing to is the Lochner Court, um, the Supreme Court in a period when it was notoriously striking down progressive legislation on the workplace, workplace hours, workplace conditions uh, in favor of robber barons and big industry. That's who Taft was, and that's who um, Roberts is lionizing. And so we, we can see where this is going, and we must resist it. We must uh, fight back against it, organize against it, and overcome it. Well, I've been saying for the longest time about Leo, you know, that what I find appalling is that this peculiar character who's a member of Opus Dei, uh, which is an extreme conservative Catholic secretive sect that doesn't even uh, announce who its members are, and there's a whole network of these Opus Dei people in the Trump administration across the board, and we can, <laughs> we can name them if you like, but, you know, Selden Whitehouse did, at a hearing, did try to point out the enormous disproportion of power this one man has uh, with his dark money, that he's got five of these six conservative right-wing justices on the court. They're all handpicked by him. He doesn't represent diversity in America. He doesn't represent diversity in the Catholic Church itself. How could we end up with such a narrow view of society, of religion, of the law, with this one man who's had such extraordinary success at the expense of American diversity. It really is astonishing. Um, you know, it was particularly astonishing during the Trump administration because he was a, quote, volunteer for Trump, uh, picking the slate that Trump was choosing from for the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, um, according to um, public records, he um, paid, paid off his mortgage way early on his home this, the year, you know, basically after Brett Kavanaugh was nominated and he bought a mansion in Maine. Um, uh, on the on the day that the Senate decided to move forward with the vote on Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. And he, um, you know, his source of income are just not known because he wasn't subject to federal disclosure rules that an employee of the White House or of the government would have been required to disclose where his sources of money were coming from. And so, you know, he's clearly um, gotten wealthier in part due to his his role within helping to choose, not just choose who goes on the bench, but also helping to direct money to groups that are trying to push those judges or those judicial nominees toward confirmation. After the Washington Post exposed his network of dark money groups that were instrumental in uh, backstopping Neil Gorsuch and um, Brett Kavanaugh for uh, their appointments to the Supreme Court. Um, after that, after that article came out, he left his his um, employment position at the Federal Society to um, basically uh, make it more visible what he was doing, in essence, which was uh, to be an quote an advisor to donors about where they should send their money. Uh, and he works now for a private, secretive, for-profit firm that he created with one of his buddies that has been instrumental in these judicial nominations fights. Um, and uh, the amount of money that they're raising uh, for the private firm is unknown. They also, uh, Leo also is connected to a couple of nonprofit groups that distribute money. It's distributed major money to the Republican attorneys general and to the Republican state leadership conference, which um, helps uh, try to install more right-wing judges on the state Supreme Courts, in addition to um, helping to get Republicans elected to um, state house, state offices. And so you have uh, both a for-profit and non-profit op operation that Leo is orchestrating, 
Um, and right now he's sitting with a Supreme Court or sitting, you know, kind of uh, on the outside uh, as an insider with so many of the justices on the Supreme Court that he helped get their offices. Um, in Leonard Leo's office at the Federal Society before he left it was a photograph of him and Brett Kavanaugh. And that photograph um, said, who's the boss? Wow. Leo or Brett Kavanaugh. Similarly, right. at, a, at, a, at a meeting of the Federal Society that was held the month that Brett Kavanaugh's nomination was pending before the United States Senate, Justice Thomas um, had an had a, had a, um, event with Leonard Leo in which he joked, Justice Thomas joked that he was there with the third most powerful man in the U.S., Leonard Leo. Well, there you have it. And, and of course, most of his activities would not have been possible but for Citizens United because he operates with dark money, which is a product resulting from that disastrous ruling. I'm, I'm afraid we've run out of time, Lisa. I want to talk to you about the billionaire behind efforts to kill the U.S. Postal Service. But we're going to be talking later in the program about deregulation in this country, so we'll cover it to some extent. So I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to be on your show, Ian, anytime. Thank you so much for inviting me. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, as executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a deputy chief of the Article III Div Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. And she has a report at In the Public Interest, the billionaire behind efforts to kill the U.S. Postal Service, and an article at Common Dreams 12 years after Citizens United the Supreme Court's right-wing revolution continues. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with the New York Times' global economic correspondent whose new book just out is Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Jack! Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Peter Goodman, the global economics correspondent for the New York Times, based in London, who was previously the New York Times national economics correspondent, where he played a leading role in the paper's award-winning coverage of the Great Recession, including a series that was a Pulitzer finalist. He also served as Washington Post China-based Asian economics correspondent, and is the author of Past Due, The End of Easy Money, and the Renewal of of the American economy, and his latest book just out is Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter. Thanks so Goodman. much. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And in many ways, it seems that we are sort of going back to a kind of feudal age in a global sense, where you've got this vast roiling underclass across the world, comprising 99.9999% of the world's population. And then you got a thin sliver above them of the kind of wealth protection 
industry of lawyers and accountants. And then sitting atop that is a handful of billionaires. Oxfam just came out with a report on the eve of Davos that the world's 10 richest men have more than doubled their collective fortunes since March of 2020. So is that a reasonable way to look at this new feudalism? I think, unfortunately, that is a reasonable way to look at it. And, you know, that Oxfam report was both stunning and entirely unsurprising. I mean, it, none of this is by accident. This is the biggest takeaway, I hope, intended from my book, uh, that this is the result of a system that's been engineered by a handful of billionaires. This is not happenstance. They have engineered this through their lawyers and their lobbyists and uh, they're uh, paid for uh, members of Congress and other legislators, uh, legislatures around the world. Uh, and it's it's a fashion uh, that has worked very well for them where they dismantle public infrastructure. They uh, downgrade uh, government programs, government services, and then they take the proceeds and they transfer them to themselves through through tax cuts. Uh, they defenestrate antitrust enforcement, which leaves us vulnerable to price increases while they're fattening their margins. And then when government doesn't work, they double down and they say, oh, you know, government's so inefficient. We may as well just eliminate programs altogether. You know, the the punchline to this we saw last year in Davos. Well, it was virtual Davos when Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce, now worth about 10 billion dollars, you know, literally said. CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic. The government didn't save you. You know, we did. And we did it not for profit, but to save the world. He was talking about, you know, COVID vaccines and, and financial firms unleashing credit in the middle of a pandemic. And, and one could be tempted to say, well, you know, that wasn't a good thing to say. That, that's backfired on him. It's like a gaffe. But it really isn't. It's a worldview. It's a fully formed worldview of the people who have rigged the system for their own benefit while you know, going far beyond the robber barons of the last century. They want our adulation for being the good guys, and they use it as a prophylactic against the redistribution of wealth. So how could Benioff not noticed that it was the U.S. federal government that financed the research for the vaccines and allowed the private companies to take the profits, and then the, the U.S. government in turn has bought the vaccines and distributed them? Well, and it's of course, it's even worse than that, right? Because take Pfizer, where Albert Borla has actually told us publicly, he's the CEO of Pfizer. Uh, this is a guy who's a multimillionaire. They took the fruits of, in some cases, publicly financed research. They ginned up vaccines in record time. And thank goodness for that, right? Props to them, props to the researchers who did that work. But then they sold those vaccines around the world to the highest bidder to maximize returns for shareholders, which of course invites variants like Omicron. It puts us in a situation where you have frontline medical workers in parts of Africa and South Asia who are treating COVID patients with no protection while in places like the United States and the UK, we're giving out booster shots, we're vaccinating kids. It's an invitation to Omicron. And the only conclusion there that's reasonable is that we, society, is subsidizing the profit for the shareholders of Pfizer paying through the perpetuation of the pandemic, increased death, destruction of livelihoods, the trashing of our kids' education as schools remain shut. I mean, it, it, that's how that structure we've seen again and again during the pandemic. 
And again, I'm speaking with Peter Goodman, the global economics correspondent for the New York Times, who was previously the New York Times' national economics correspondent, where he played a leading role in the paper's award-winning coverage of the Great Recession, including a series that was a Pulitzer finalist. He also served as Washington Post's China-based Asian economics correspondent and is the author of Past Due, The End of Easy Money and the Renewal of the American Economy. And his latest book just out is Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Well, you've profiled in your book Mark Benioff, the guy that wears Hawaiian shirts and his offices have in the tallest building in San Francisco. And what has he called his golden retriever that walks around Chief with him? Chief Love Officer. His yeah. love officer. Okay. Chief so love officer. He, yeah, so he refers to the company as Ohana. He's co-opted a Hawaiian term for kinship. <laughs> so he's a touchy-feely capitalist. I mean, he's a touchy-feely capitalist, but, you know, let's give Benioff his due. I actually find him the most complex of the five Davos men I, I profile because, by all accounts, he's serious about philanthropy. I mean, he's he actually – he's not just a guy who puts his name on a building. He is somebody who will write a check for homeless services. He financed a ballot initiative in San Francisco that's increased taxes on big tech companies like his to increase uh, services – and, and, you know, he did during the pandemic, the first wave of the pandemic, that is, pull his connections in China to go and secure things like face masks and gowns and hand sanitizer for frontline medical workers who were lacking that stuff in the U.S. and distributed that. He's now taken a bow for that. But this raises a bunch of questions. First of all, why are we dependent upon the largesse of a tech bro in the midst of the worst pandemic in a century to outfit our frontline medical workers in what's supposedly the richest, most powerful country on earth. And his t the 10 million that he put into this ballot initiative in San Francisco is like a rounding error alongside the modest sum of zero that he paid in federal taxes as a company on several billion dollars in revenues, not once, but twice. And again, that doesn't happen by accident. That happens through Benioff's participation in the business roundtable, led at the time by Jamie uh, by Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, who who helped deliver the Trump tax cuts worth one point five trillion dollars, lavished primarily on Davos men like Jamie Dimon and Mark Benioff. And this wouldn't have happened, except that during the Clinton administration, the Treasury then allowed these corporations to ship their intellectual property to a place like Ireland where they could then domicile their corporations and pay little to no tax and not be responsible for the fact that they live and profit here in the in the United States and the Oxfam report lists the 10 richest men in America Elon Musk Jeff Bezos Bernard Arnault of course is the the exception there, the rest are American, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Ballmer, and Warren Buffett. And collectively, there are 2,660 billionaires around the world with a combined wealth of $13.76 Shall I read the wealth of the top five here in the United States? <laughs> sure. Okay. Elon Musk, $294.2 billion. Jeff Bezos, $202.6 billion. Bill Gates, $137.4 billion. Larry Ellison, $125.7 billion. And Larry Page, $122.8 billion. And you profile Bezos in your book, Peter Goodman, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. He doesn't seem to be particularly philanthropic. He'd rather 
loft into space, right, uh, and deal with worldly problems. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I'm very careful in the book to note that we don't want to demonize billionaires or certainly not business people in general, right? I mean, Bezos is a certifiable genius who has executed tremendously on this vision for what he calls the everything store. He's revolutionized how we buy products. It's it would be very hard to go back to life before e-commerce for most of us now that we've gotten a taste of that convenience. And I think, you know, one can rightfully say, well, okay, so he makes a whole lot more than everybody else. That's just how it is in a capitalist economy. But it's not simply that he's making out dramatically well while, you know, the inequality is just inescapable, while workers in his warehouses are deprived of basic protective gear during the first wave of the pandemic. When one of them protests and leads a walkout, a guy named Christian Smalls in Staten Island, he's fired officially for violating quarantine, which is incredibly ironic considering that he actually wants a quarantine for everyone. He wants everyone to go home and have there be paid sick leave until we can guarantee that the warehouse is safe. And Amazon has lobbied systematically against paid sick leave for years, and they're certainly not going to make an, an exception there. It's not that Bezos is doing really well and Christian Small and his colleagues are doing less well. It's that Bezos is doing well because Christian Small and his colleagues are not doing well. His fortune is dependent upon perverting international trade, for one thing, uh, diverting the gains of modern capitalism. I mean, the U.S. Has, has benefited dramatically from globalization, but the gains haven't been distributed equitably. People like Smalls have been deprived of a piece of the action. And then even when all this breaks and it becomes a huge public relations scandal for Amazon, Bezos, very Davos man here, doubles down and actually attacks the messenger. Uh, they first of all, their Vice News breaks the fact that uh, the count, the general counsel of Amazon, suggests that they train their attention in terms of PR on Smalls, who's an African American guy, uh, reared in Newark, says in notes that Vice News obtains that well, he's not very smart, he's not very articulate. To the extent we can make the movement about him, uh, will benefit. And then uh, Bezos releases a note. Dear Amazonians, yes, it's true. We don't have uh, enough PPE. We're working on that. But thank you, you, you selfless workers, for continuing to do the Lord's work of trying to outfit the rest of society in a pandemic and claims that they're prioritizing uh, important goods that are saving other people's grandmothers, like, you know, hand sanitizer, masks, et cetera. At the same time that Smalls and his coworkers are putting those things into these boxes, they don't have their own. And Smalls, by the way, says that's not even true. It tells me, oh, actually, we're just putting the same stuff as usual. Sex toys, baking goods, video game consoles. So the, the cynicism, while all of these guys were taking a bow, Bezos then signed, or Bezos was a signatory the year before to this much ballyhooed new statement of a purpose of a corporation, the thing that's supposed to usher in stakeholder capitalism, where companies are not just catering to the bottom line, a la Milton Friedman. They're now catering to stakeholders, social concerns, labor, communities. He signs this pledge, and then that's how Smalls and the other warehouse workers are treated. And then Bezos blasts himself into space at a cost of $5 billion, which would have been enough to vaccinate the world multiple times over, even if we're paying monopoly royalties to Pfizer and the other pharmaceutical companies. 
But I think the worst thing of all, though, Peter Goodman, is he doesn't pay taxes. And isn't that just simple greed? I mean, the other guy you mentioned, Benioff, doesn't pay taxes neither. At least his company doesn't. This is where I think it's extraordinary. And, you know, back in the Eisenhower days when that was considered the golden age of American, the American dream, what was it, 94%, 92% was the tax rate? from the, Yeah, um, So right. these people don't want to... I mean, there's a new phenomenon being coined by the Harvard political scientist, Jacob Hacker, yeah. uh, plutocratic populism, and Trump is right. the epitome of that. And it seems to me that the plutocrats are actually incredibly clever to be able to have this vast wealth that nobody can touch, not pay taxes, benefit from everything the government does in many ways. I mean, Elon Musk was subsidized by the government initially, right. and yet not pay their taxes, and then be able to get the working people in this country divided over stupid things like culture wars and fighting amongst themselves while they they laugh all the way to the bank. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, this cynicism from Davos, man, about Trump. I mean, I was at Davos in January of 2018 when Trump shows up. And the conventional wisdom, like the way it was packaged by most of us in the press, was this titillation that, well, as I describe it in my book, we're supposed to react as if, you know, a, a guy who runs a topless barbecue joint is showing up at a solemn gathering of Talmudic scholars, you know, because Davos, man, uh, is supposed to care about international cooperation. Davos, man, is offended by misogyny and racism and and, you know, Trump is threatening to blow up the liberal world order. He's he's yanked the U.S. out of the Paris uh, climate change agreement. But the truth is Davos is really dominated by giant tech companies, consulting companies, finance firms. These are the people who pay the bills and they don't care very much about like the official program, which is full of all kinds of earnest discussions about important issues of the day. They're spending their time at cocktail parties, banquets. You know, I, I mean, billionaires are going to Davos and they're like engaging in simulations of the Syrian refugee experience by day, you know, being led around in the dark while people are screaming at them in language that they don't understand, demanding papers, patting themselves on the back for going through this torture, and then going and having, you know, caviar campaign underwritten by, by global banks. I mean, that's the reality at Davos. And those guys could see through Trump. Uh, I mean, okay, they would tell you, well, we'd prefer that he not threaten to renounce the American national debt like it's some debt to Deutsche Bank from some failing casino. We could live without that. That could make the market unhappy. But we can see what's going to happen. We're going to get tax cuts. We're going to get deregulation. And in 2018, they had just gotten the biggest tax cuts they could have ever imagined. So he was, in fact, you know, really a hero. And and I, I think, you know, to your point about the unfairness of taxation, most of these billionaires are paying a much smaller share of even their income than the people who are scrubbing their toilets. I mean, that's that's just that's based on academic work by Gabriel Zuckman and, and, and Emmanuel Saez at, at, at Berkeley. And the worst part of it is how they've saturated our discourse with this idea that taxation is somehow evil. So, you know, you mentioned that top tax rates in the U.S. used to be, you know, well above 70 percent into the 90s at times when the American economy was growing robustly and truly everybody was getting a piece of the action. And yet I would say this is anecdotally the average American, even people who would say, oh, I wish we had, you know, better health care. I wish it were cheaper to send my kids to college. I wish infrastructure wasn't 
embarrassing. They would still say, well, you know, we can't we can't afford health care. You know, we'd have to pay too much in taxes. And they and people have internalized this idea that taxation is the enemy of innovation, which is totally a false binary served up by Davos man through think tanks, through lobbyists, where he's convinced us that we can either accept you know, monopoly profits for vaccines or we get no vaccines at all. We either have Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone investing in our healthcare, diminishing it, shutting down hospital beds. I mean, as as happened throughout the healthcare industry in the decades running up to the pandemic, or we don't have any healthcare at all. And all of these false binaries are what make it so difficult to do the fairly simple things. They're not simple in execution. You know, Davos man's got quite an apparatus to fight off change, but they're pretty simple in terms of prescription, progressive taxation, labor rights, antitrust enforcement. Again, you know, you pull off those three things, we could solve a lot of problems. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Peter Goodman, how does Davos man and the 10 richest uh, Americans that Oxfair named, well, nine, I guess, and, you know, there's some talk of, of a global wealth tax, et cetera, but I don't see Biden can't even get any through his own caucus. Nothing. Mint, yeah, we've got nothing. And cinema, so forget about that. But at the end of the day, we are heading into a kind of one-party state. The Republicans are rigging the election to the extent that we could end up like the GOP, Trump's GOP, I might add, could end up like Putin's united Russia, and we can have a kind of pseudo-democracy. That's where we're heading. So how does Davos man and the billionaires feel about that? Do they want to live in a one-party Republican state? I don't think Davos man cares very much about the political configuration or the ideology. These are like talking points in the service of his own fortune. You know, I mean, Davos man loves free markets when that means uh, he can do what he wants and doesn't have to be regulated. He's all for state intervention when he can get his hands on taxpayer financed bailouts in emergencies or when he can craft what bailouts are there uh, to prop up his own assets. Davos man believes in Davos man. Uh, and 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 so so we don't have to give a lot of thought to to how the billionaire class views the political system. Moreover, you know, just look at how the billionaire class has experienced the pandemic. I mean, one of the most extraordinary things that Benioff said, this was back in uh, April of 2020, he went on Jim Cramer's TV show and he said, I'm paraphrasing, you know, the, the pandemic has been this great unifier. You know, we're all experiencing it together. We're all human. We're all vulnerable to this virus. It's a race to the illusion, he said, the illusion of our borders. Somebody who actually works at Salesforce tweeted at me recently that you should know that Salesforce actually gets pretty significant revenues from ICE, for whom I assure you the borders are in no way illusory. Uh, but, you know, you think about this. I mean, Benioff at the time is riding out the pandemic in his oceanfront mansion on the big island of Hawaii, or maybe it's his $28 million residence in, uh, over, overlooking San Francisco Bay, I, I can't recall. You know, we've got Steve Schwartzman hosting dinner parties in the Hamptons, uh, giving people rapid tests to be guests at a time when New York City public schools can't open because nobody has any tests, nobody has any idea how COVID is spreading. I mean, this idea that we're all united is belied immediately by a simple observation about who has to go work in a slaughterhouse, who has to empty a bedpan in a nursing home, who can and cannot work from home. 
assume. And of course, even the white collar people who do have that privilege, and it's quite a privilege compared to those who lack it, are still dealing with, you know, kids out of school, child care is unavailable, fear, relatives in the hospital. I mean, the idea that we're all one through this is just kind of tragically hilarious. And so the idea that Davos man will stop and give a thought to the implications of of the state of democracy. I mean, Davos man has been taken this as an opportunity to buy private islands, to add to his fleet of private jets, to add new residences and to buy up assets at distressed prices. Schwartzman's buying more healthcare. He's buying more warehouses that he's leasing to Amazon. Uh, Benioff has seen his net worth, you know, swell past $10 billion because Salesforce makes the software that we're using to work from home. Bezos is richer than ever because uh, we're all buying stuff on Amazon. And 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 Jamie Moore, uh, Jamie Dimon has been celebrating J.P. Morgan Chase's you know, record earnings from investment banking fees. It, it's just very difficult to imagine that these guys are are shedding a tear for the fate of democracy when they're the ones who've actually perverted democracy and left us susceptible to these right wing opportunists who come along and and prescribe wacko solutions to very real problems. Well, Peter Goodman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Appreciate your interest. And again, I'll be speaking with Peter Goodman, who's the global economics correspondent for the New York Times based in London and previously was the New York Times national economics correspondent, where he played a leading role in the paper's award-winning coverage of the Great Recession, including a series that was a Pulitzer finalist. He also served as Washington Post China-based Asian economics correspondent and is the author of Past Due, The End of Easy Money and the Renewal of the American Economy. And his latest book just out is Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the links between privatization and the undermining of rights, freedom and democracy. Hey, Pa, get ready to call Just like Humpty Dumpty I'm going to fall And I'm sitting on top of the world I'm rolling along Yes, rolling along Don't want any millions I'm getting my share I've only got one suit Just one, that's all I can wear A bundle of money Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Donald Cohen, the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an Oakland, California-based national resource and policy center on privatization and responsible contracting. He's also a founding board member of the Partnership for Working Families and a former political director of the San Diego and Imperial Counties Labor Council. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Reuters, Los Angeles Times, and the New Republic, and he is the co-author of the new book, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Welcome to Background Briefing, Donald Cohen. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to the discussion. Well, thanks for joining us, Donald. And obviously, the plutocracy is on a roll in, the, in America. There's a new phenomenon now in political science known as plutocratic populism, which Trump exemplifies since he's, all of his policies ultimately reward the plutocrats, but his followers, his base, are all these populists. So given that massive voter suppression is underway and the Republicans could well create a one-party state starting in the end of the year with the elections uh, this year, 
it would seem to me that some of the stuff that you have in your book about our recent history, particularly going back over 100 years ago to the last quarter of the 19th century, where the wealthy residents of New York and Chicago and Cleveland constructed armories in the middle of their wealthy enclaves with billionaires or millionaires paying for it and the military manning them. New York's new armory on the Upper East Side was funded largely by the head fundraiser, William Astor. There was a a library, mahogany library, called the Veterans Room that was designed by Louis Comfort Tiffany. So the whole purpose of that was that the plutocrats were afraid that the masses would rise up. Well, similar legislation is happening in this country, and particularly in some of the states like DeSantis's Florida. They're Mm -hmm. anticipating the Democrats and those that were denied the vote in November and those who had the vote stolen in November that they might rise up. DeSantis has passed laws in Florida which prevent people from demonstrating, more than five or six people gathering. And in fact, if you are a Trumpster or a member of a militia and a supporter of Trump or a MAGA-hatted person, you can drive your pickup truck into a crowd of Democrats and get a, get a out of free jail pass. So there seems to be some similarities here, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, there were definitely similarities. That's uh, quite a opening to sort of think about. So uh, yes, there are enormous similarities, and it's not just the you know the the populists, as you say, it is the the plutocrats who are benefiting from this, who in you know in many ways are funding it. I mean, not all of them, but you know the Koch brothers are funding lots of some of this you know anti CRT and anti, you know populist stuff on the right on the in the grassroots right, if you can call it that. Um, so they are taking advantage, you know, in the end, you know, the book, the, the book talks about sort of the, basically the corporate assault on democracy by getting control of our public things. And they are using racism and they are using, you know, right-wing populism to, you know, to turn people away from public services, to turn people away from government so that they can get their hands on it. It's a real, you know, it's just kind of a simple story. And, and you know, I think the other thing when you when you sort of describe that arc of history, you know, there, you know, this may not be entirely accurate, but there was a period of time, you know, in the middle of the century, 21st, 20th century, excuse me, when corporate America saw their interests tied to the interest of the rest of us because we were their consumers. That's less true now. They can be, you know, they, they they operate globally. We operate domestically. So I think we're seeing that same sort of, you know, global gated communities happen, um, you know, in, in in global you know markets and capitalism now. Well, there's always been these characters like Grover Norquist, who said that his aim is to shrink government down enough so you drown it in the bathtub, uh, and he's always been funded by plutocrats. But you mentioned the Koch brothers. The more insidious plutocrat out there now that's funding the most rabid MAGA candidates for the U.S. Senate, including J.D. Vance in Ohio, is Peter Thiel. And the richest 10 people in the world, I think eight out of 10 of them, are from Silicon Valley. And they're certainly not all funding Trump, although Zuckerberg arguably is helping Trump enormously by the laissez-faire nature of Facebook, meaning that the far right and the neo-Nazis can organize on Facebook, which they do. Mm -hmm. So I see him as being 
really a danger. And basically, by running these rabid far-right candidates who want to destroy government, that seems to be what's happening. I mean, I just read a piece this morning on the BBC, uh, Donald, basically saying, is America ungovernable? Well, <laughs> the plutocrats and the libertarian plutocrats like Peter Thiel want it to be ungovernable. Isn't that their very aim? Yeah, it's pretty simple. You know, they, you know, I mean, I think I don't know Peter Thiel personally, but he is a, you know, a self-interested uh, libertarian is how I would call him. He is he probably is a true believer in libertarian, you know, be, with libertarian beliefs, but he conveniently makes lots of money <laughs> with those set of beliefs. So that's why, you know, that's why I put them together. So what do they want? They want fewer regulations. They want fewer taxes. They want fewer unions. They want fewer obstacles and restrictions on their ability to make money and to do what they want. I, you know, I, I think it's as simple as that. And government gets in the way. Now, occasionally, government subsidizes things, but they, you know, there are lots of there's lots of hypocrisy in that by you know corporations, probably even Thiel. But, you know, because they they benefit massively from government spending and subsidies and, and all sorts of things. But, you know, they just, you know, hypocrisy hasn't been a problem recently, you know, by conservatives. And again, I'm speaking with Donald Cohen, who's the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an Oakland, California-based National Resource and Policy Center on Privatization and Responsible Contracting. He's also a founding board member of the Partnership for Working Families and a former political director of the San Diego and Imperial Counties Labor Council. And his latest book, co-authored with Alan Millikalian, is The Privatization of Everything, How the plunder of public goods transformed America and how we can fight back. So the Build Back Better plan is dead. We saw yesterday in the Senate this somewhat futile debate to rescue voting rights from this Republican assault with Mansion and Cinema basically killing it. And that's obviously hugely damaging. But Mansion and Cinema were able to get their infrastructure bill passed uh, at the expense of Build Back Better. And much of that infrastructure bill, which I think, what, 20-odd Republicans joined it for a very good reason, that it was essentially a Republican bill. And one of the aspects of it, of course, was broadband. And here we are, the country that invented the Internet with some of the worst broadband in the world. It's taken for granted in Japan, South Korea, France, other countries. You get a whole gigabyte, and it's very cheap. Now, a few, few municipalities in the United States have managed to get a gigabyte broadband like Chattanooga, Tennessee and Santa Monica, California here. But in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Mansion and Cinema were touting and celebrating, the telecom monopolies, Verizon and AT&T, etc., they ran the table. They got everything. Government money is going to subsidize their crappy service. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and you, you know, that's. I mean, listen, it's about power. It's about who controls our stuff. It's about who gets who benefits from it. It's about who pays for it. it. You know, when you get down to it, the other interesting thing about broadband is, you know, and, and sort of to show the power of the telecoms, is a number of cities, like you meant, Chattanooga and and others around the country, have said, let's do, you know, municipal broadband. Let's have public broadband in our communities, and for you know, it'll be cheaper, and we can and we can do like, you know, what Chattanooga did. We can have better. So what? But the the telecom response, telecom companies' response was to go to state legislatures and and get laws passed to prevent and prohibit cities from being able to do that. 
um, you know, preemption bills they're referred to as. The, you know, sort of the interesting twist on that to sort of show a little, that gives me a little bit of hope is that the Colorado law allowed cities, if they wanted to do municipal broadband, they they would have to take a public vote. Um, and everyone that, that did, that did the, it was, was passed overwhelmingly. Denver, Loveland, I mean, there's a, a long list of cities because people understand, you know, when they're being taken. Well, but they don't have a choice in, more often than not. And those preemptive laws, by the way, are in that bipartisan bill that is now law. And yeah. I don't know how, how you stop that because I need good broadband to do my program now from home studios because of COVID. And uh, it's pathetic. Uh, well, I mean, it's pretty clear that it's pretty clear to all of us now, or many of us, that broadband access to the internet is as important as the interstate highway system, as our transit systems, at our mobility. It's you know, it's that fundamentally essential in piece of our infrastructure. You know, the the rural broadband issue is a, is very problematic. You know, I I was in Northern California for a month last year. Um, you know, in COVID. All we had was satellite broadband. Couldn't use it. Couldn't you? Couldn't do You know, couldn't have meetings. Couldn't do things. And you know, so people who genuinely live in small towns and rural communities across the country don't have the same access, even that we do in the city. With you know, and I, I buy it from Spectrum, um, but you know, that's a problem for the economy overall. It's a problem for lots of people's lives and farmers and sort of all of the above. You know, that's the you know, the first thing we got to decide is is it. An essential piece, essential public good that we all need. Yes. How do we and then how do we make sure everyone's got it? How do we make sure we're not being gouged you know, by private companies? Um, that's the government's role. And only the and, and government, you know, federal government and state governments are the only institutions that can accomplish that. Well, of course, the other canard that's foisted along with this idea of, of going back to Reagan that government is the problem as opposed to the solution, and that's that has metastasized. But now you have a situation where all the Republicans can say is that Biden's a socialist and that anybody in the Democratic Party is now a leftist, which is pathetically untrue, of course. Uh, Biden was confronted with that yesterday in his press conference. So can you make a, an argument... A, a pro-capitalist argument now to neutralize these lies and nonsense. In other words, that with more public competition for broadband and, for example, Biden mentioned in his speech how one of the big drivers of inflation, along with rising gas prices, are the four monopolies that control the meatpacking in, in terms of beef and pork and poultry. Uh, one of them is a Brazilian company, the other one is Chinese-owned, that Biden's talking about getting more competition going. So is that an argument that could work? It, because obviously this is a deeply capitalist country and and mm -hmm. hostility towards anything on the left just manifest, of course, and to the point of absurdity. Well, well I'm not an expert in, monopoly, in on monopolies, but I do work with a number of people who are, and um, I think... You know, I genuinely believe that the concentration of economic power in the market and in politics, of course, it, you know, hurts us all. So I think that's, you know, that's the first thing, important thing I'd say. But having but just, you know, again, this is not from a position of expertise, but just breaking things up doesn't only without a, another step or two 
doesn't necessarily, you know, take us all the way. And the other, the first and other step is to make sure we set standards, right? Right. So it's not the free market. Let everybody go. Let's break up the big ones. And then then it becomes a race, you know, continues as a race to the bottom. We need to make sure we do that. We 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 appropriately insert competition so to help consumers, but not hurt workers. All right. And communities in other ways. Um, so I, I think that's kind of really important to understand. But, the, you know, I, again, at the core of a lot we're facing now is the concentration of power and wealth and, 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 and you know, across the board. The other thing I'll say in terms of, you know, you asked about a pro-capitalist argument. One of the things I talk about a lot is, you know, there are um, businesses do one thing. They sell stuff. That's it. That's all they do. They want to sell more and they want to make more. And, you know, it's it's what they do. I'm not, you know, purely objectively. But that's not always in our interest. You know, prison companies sell heads and beds. We want fewer people in beds. So they, you know, they use their power, economic power and political power, you know, to put more heads in beds, more people in prison and immigrant detention centers. So, you know, I think that's really important to understand that we have different interests. They're, I'll just say their interests are legitimate businesses. That's what they do. I mean, I don't think so in private prisons, actually, but, in you know, just in general. Um but they're different. There's public things and there's market things and there's private things and they don't match. They don't mix. We don't you can't uh, you can't accomplish what we need to do for everybody. The essentials if you give it to the market and you give it to private sector. So you have to you know, the first thing is you've got to get clear about the difference of our interests. Right. Well, at the end of the day, are you going to confiscate and privatize the air we breathe? We're, they're already privatizing the water we drink. That's right. Well, the oil company, I mean, listen, they've, yes, they've privatized the air we breathe because here's how we define privatization. Private control over public goods, public goods broadly defined that we all need, clean air, a healthy environment, clean water, the planet, I mean, all of the above. Right now, the oil companies have more control over the, you know, the, uh, the quality of our air and, and, and the amount of greenhouse gases than we do. That's control. That's privatization, in my view. Sure. And, it's, and it's and it's you know, it's putting and the they, and they're fighting uh, uh, efforts to uh, deal with global warming. Well, that's right because again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. They do one thing: they sell stuff, they sell oil, and so all they care about, you know, really is how much oil can they sell, how much can they, does it cost to make? Meaning, you know, fewer reg regulations helps keep keep the cost down. Uh, what's their market share, and what's the, you know what's the profit margin? That's what they care about. Um, and it's our job to make sure that their interests don't supersede ours. Well, Donald Cole, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, right. thank you as well. I enjoyed the conversation. And again, I've been speaking with Donald Cohen, who's a founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an Oakland, California-based national resource and policy center on privatization and responsible contracting. He's also a founding board member of the Partnership for Working Families and a former political director of the San Diego and Imperial Counties Labor Council. And he's a co-author with Alan McKellian of a new book, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America Oh